And good morning, brothers and sisters. Love, love worshiping with you, my church family, this morning. It's an honor to sing to our great God this morning together. I want to invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I know what you're thinking. I, I thought we were in numbers in the reading plan. We are. We'll get there in a few minutes. But I want you to find your place in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be in 9 and 10 a little bit. Then we'll jump over to Numbers 21. So keep your Bibles handy if you need a Bible, a copy of God's Word. Uh, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. That's our gift to you. So you feel free to take that and use that this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be. I uh, just want to share something really quick with you. Uh, great week for me personally, really thankful. Uh, Jennifer and I had the opportunity to be a part of a church planter event in Phoenix, Arizona, where it just happened to be 80 degrees and sunny, but that's beside the point. Uh, we're suffering for Jesus there, but had a really cool opportunity. It was a gathering of what's called the SEND Network of the North American Mission Board, about 600 pastors, church planters there, and what was cool is over and over, just heard a ton of neat stories of what God is doing and starting new churches across the unchurched western part of the United States. And every time I heard one of those stories, it occurred to me that we as a church are a part of every one of those. As we hear about churches being planted in uh, you know, Phoenix and L.A. and Denver and Portland and all those through our giving, through Give to Go, and our giving through Sin Network, we, we're a part of that. Your giving helps you be a part of what God is doing by, by starting new churches all over our country and all over the world. And then in particular, there was one night, it was just really a joy for Jennifer and me. We were, we were at a table having dinner together, and right next to us was Derek Scherfe. And he was down from Denver to be a part of it and was sharing what was going on with the Oaks Fellowship in Denver, the church that our church planted, where the parent church, right next to Derek, was a dude named Michael that's probably going to be the first church planter out of the Oaks. So kind of sitting there looking at our spiritual grandchildren as a church, it was really sweet. Right next to them was Corey Sanders, church planter in Portland, where we got to plant a church as a church in Portland. Our church impacted there. And then right next to them was another young couple. They're going to be planting, starting a brand new work right downtown Los Angeles, uh, and we have an opportunity as a church to come in align with that couple and perhaps be a part of what God is doing there. So it was a, it's a sweet day or two for me just to go, Lord, thank you for what we get to be a part of here at Tri-Cities, but it's not just about us, it's about what he's doing in other places the world to advance the gospel, and we get to be a big part of that. So came home just really full and overwhelmed with the privileges and the blessings God has given us as a church. And at the very same time, in the back of my mind, I know the passage we're getting ready to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians 9. So there was this real sense of where there is much privilege, there is great responsibility. And where there is much blessing, there's going to be great temptation. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is going to help us with this a little bit. He say, why are we there? Because 1 Corinthians 9 and then spilling over into 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul's commentary of the book of Numbers. He's going to help us understand what we've been reading through the book of Numbers this morning. Now, as you read through your Bible, the, the Bible uses a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphors to describe this thing called the Christian life. 
This thing called following Jesus. That there's imagery like military imagery. In places Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Or we are soldiers, soldiers in active duty. Or, or the idea that we are wrestling with power, supernatural forces. It's kind of this picture of a wrestling match. Sometimes it feels that way. Other illustrations are agricultural illustrations. Jesus very famously, John 15 said, okay, picture your life in Christ like this. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you remain in me, this dynamic, growing, abiding relationship, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. But as you abide in me, there's much fruit that'll be born. Your, your life, your sustenance, your nourishment come from this dynamic, growing relationship with me, Jesus said. So it's an agricultural metaphor. Here in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's going to use an athletic metaphor. He's going to say the idea of following Christ, it's like a runner who's preparing for a race. Look with me, verse 24 of chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and all this is introduction, so they're going to go through this fast. Do you not know that all who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? There could be 30 runners, but only one's going to win the prize. He comes back and he says, to us, to the church at Corinth, run in such a way that you may win the prize. Paul says, when you approach your life as a believer, like a runner who is pursuing the finish line, the victory, there is to be a degree of diligence, a degree of perseverance, a degree of self-control. Man, it's like this. We're pursuing something that matters. Now, let me be very clear. If you're here as a child of God and you know the Lord Jesus, you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen? Everything you enjoy and experience is through faith in Christ and the finished work of Christ. Paul is going to add to that and say, but the grace that saves us will produce in us a pursuit. There will be this pursuit in us of knowing God more there will be this pursuit in us to be like Christ. There will be this grace, gospel-motivated desire to make Jesus Christ known. It's like a runner on a race. Paul says, and I'm like a runner. I'm reaching toward this goal of knowing God more, of being more Christ-like, of making the gospel known. And he says, just like a runner, I'm willing to push out of my life anything that distracts me. I'm willing to bring into my life anything that propels me toward this goal. Keep going. Verse 25. He says, everyone who competes in the games and in this context, this culture, they were very familiar with the Olympic games. They understood the games said, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. No athlete, to take the metaphor, is going to achieve and advance without a degree of self-control. Potato chips on the couch and gold medals don't go together. That's the point. See? He says everyone practices self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul says, I know athletes who lay down their life and walk in self-control to get that wreath. And oh, by the way, it's perishable. We are pursuing something that is imperishable. How much more motivated should we be to pursue diligence, self-control? Paul goes on, verse 26, he says, therefore... 
I run in such a way as not without aim. There's a focus to my life, Paul says. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I'm not just waving my arms. There's purpose and aim in what I'm doing. Verse 27, here's the kicker. He says, but I discipline my body. Your translation may say buffet my body. Doesn't mean buffet my body. It means discipline my body. It's not an advertisement for prime sirloin or the golden corral, all right? It says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Why, Paul? So that after I have preached to others, after I have made known the gospel of Christ, I myself should not be disqualified. Hmm. Oh, what do you mean disqualified? And we have to interpret this verse in light of the whole New Testament in the Bible, that someone who is in Christ is secure in Christ because your security is based on his righteousness and not your own. So Paul's not talking about you lose your salvation here. Talking about. He says, there's a real possibility, and I understand this, Paul says. I've had enough friends, Paul says. I've watched those who are hard after Christ, pursuing after Christ, and there's this diligence, and then there's this pursuit, but then they stumble. And then there's there's the things in their heart that become distracted, and they become focused on the things of the world, and their pursuit of Jesus is not quite what it once was, and their proclamation of the gospel is not quite what it once was, and then they fall into something that disqualifies them from proclaiming the gospel, which means their life no longer matches their message. And Paul says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes like a runner to discipline my body, to train, to bring into my life, to get out of my life, because I don't want anything to discredit the message of Jesus that I proclaim. Because I don't want there to be anything that causes me to be disqualified, set on the shelf, so to speak. As I was reading this this week and just preparing, I, I told you about the time we were in Phoenix. It was a glorious time of kind of reunion with some of my old friends. Let me tell you what else struck me in Phoenix. The brothers who were not there, who used to be walking with God and used to be proclaiming the gospel, and now they're not there and they've chosen different decisions. And because of decisions they've made, the straying of their heart, they're set on the shelf and their life doesn't match the gospel they say they proclaim anymore. And Paul says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes that that's not me. Paul says, wake up and realize the greatest enemy is not out there. The greatest enemy is right here. It is within. Paul says, I'm free, I'm blessed, but freedom without self-control, without discipline, is a recipe for disaster, like a runner who is pursuing something of great value. Paul says, we as followers of Christ, we're pursuing something of greater infinite value. Paul, do you have an illustration for us of what you're talking about? Great blessing and yet no self-control that ends up in disaster. And Paul says, oh, chapter 10, by the way, I do, the book of Numbers. (laughs) And that's what leads Paul into the study of chapter 10. He's going to walk through his commentary of the book of Numbers and the children of Israel. What we've been reading together, draw out some applications to The church here he's writing to, which are applications for us. Now, we're walking through the Bible, Bible 2020. 
I hope you're participating in that. I hope, hope you're continuing that, reading guides and all that available. But in the book of Numbers that you're reading right now, you have a picture of a people who have been blessed, a people who have been delivered, a people who have been set free. And because of the misuse of the freedom they've been given, they fall into idolatry, immorality, rebellion, and grumbling. That's the stories we've been reading through. Now, one slight switch today, I just want to tell you this. Up to this point in our reading plan, we've said, okay, Sunday's message will precede next week's reading. In other words, what we would do on Sunday is getting you ready for next week's reading. We've heard from many of you, especially life group guides, some of our teachers said it would be better if Sunday's message came out of the week's previous reading. So we're making that switch today. You say, what does that mean for the reading plan? Don't get confused, just stick to the reading plan. I'm the, we're the only ones that's changing your Sunday message. So it's going to come out of what you've just read. We're going to look at what Paul has to say about what you've been reading the last few weeks in the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers is a book of wanderings. Children of Israel have been wandering around in the desert. They're there for 40 years because of their unbelief and they're not trusting God. Paul uses it as an example in our lives. Look with me, chapter 10, verse 1. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Paul's talking to believers, a local church like ours, Church of Corinth. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, making reference to the children of Israel. The cloud that followed, that went before them in the day, the pillar of fire by night, they passed through the Red Sea. Verse two, he says, they were all baptized into Moses. What does that mean? Well, the word baptized means to be identified with something. They were identified with Moses, their leader. They had someone who led them out of captivity. They had Moses. It's a picture of Jesus leading the people of God out of captivity. Verse three, they all ate the same spiritual food. God provided supernatural food for them in the wilderness. You read about that every morning manna, every night quail, God's provision. They all drank the same spiritual drink. And then listen to this, verse four. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. What does that mean, Paul? That means it's this, you read through your rigs, there's this rock that shows up a lot that's following the children of Israel. They, Moses speaks to the rock, water comes out, he gets upset, he strikes the rock, water comes out. In other words, Paul is saying, here, that rock was a pre-incarnate representation of the Jesus, the Messiah himself. In other words, they had the blessing of the very presence of the Messiah with them. What a blessing. This rock was a picture of Christ, God's provision of the Messiah who was going to come. God gave them guidance. God gave them deliverance. God gave them provision. God gave them his presence. God gave them purpose. Remember back in Exodus 4, God said, you are a kingdom of priests. In other words, Israel was to make known to the nations the ways of God. They were to be a picture that the nations could look at and go, oh, that's how God operates. Oh, that's how human relationships can operate. Oh, I get it. So they were to be this kingdom of priests that the world could look at and see the light and the glory of the gospel of God himself, problem that didn't always work out real well, did it? So Paul is communicating here, they had immense blessings 
given to them by God. That's why when you get to verse five, it almost takes your breath away. He says, verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. <laughs> That's an understatement. Laid low in the wilderness is a representation of that first generation who wandered around for 40 years until all of them died off because of their refusal to trust God. Joshua, Caleb, the only two that entered the promised land, they were laid low. So the picture is there's this carnage of these people who had received so much blessing that were put on the sideline because of their refusal to trust God. Paul says, I don't want that ever to happen to you. I don't want that ever to happen to me. Paul says, I don't want that ever happen to you, Corinth. Corinth had all kinds of problems. Verse six. Now these things happened as examples for us. Now, this is challenging, middle of verse six. So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Paul says, everything you've been reading, all the stories of the Old Testament, they're there as examples, pictures to us. Because what's this? The same condition of the human heart that was in them is in us. So here's your big truth. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Same big truth is this. The stories of old are written to instruct, admonish, and warn us today. Paul, these people he loves, this local church here is saying, I, I've got some, some warnings for you. He says, the last thing I want is you in this race of pursuing Jesus to be distracted, even disqualified by decisions you make from, from being an effective gospel witness, whatever that might look like. Paul says, I, I don't want that to happen. So he goes on and he gives several illustrations. He gives four characteristics that summarize the temptations that the children of Israel succumb to. They're warnings for us. They're challenges for us. He lays them out here. So I'm going to give you those four. Then we're going to give some big, big ideas, and we're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper together in just a few minutes, all right? Here's the question. Paul, help us. What are the common temptations that distract our pursuit of Jesus and diminish gospel effectiveness. What are those common temptations? You've been reading through, right? You've been reading through these stories, your numbers now. You read these things. There are common temptations that are common to the human heart that easily distract you and me from our pursuit of Jesus and can diminish our gospel effectiveness, okay? I'll give you four of them, then we're going to apply them. Here they are. Paul goes on, verse 7. The first one he points out is idolatry. Look at verse 7. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Stop right there. Paul's making specific reference back to, back to Exodus 32. Moses is on the mountain. He comes down. Children of Israel got all his free time on their hands. They say, who are we going to attribute all this good stuff that's been happening to us? We need to make an idol. And they made this golden calf. And they worshiped to this golden calf. They constructed this visible idol, believing it to be a right representation of the God who had delivered them. What in the world does a golden calf have to do with you and me thousands of years later in East Tennessee? Here's the point. 
Let me put it this way. So a few weeks ago, before we were able to go to Phoenix, God, God's let me just see some neat activity of his around the world. We were in India with a team from our church. And if you've ever traveled to India, one of the characteristics is of the people of India, the Hindu culture, there's idols everywhere. There's little statues everywhere. You go in a home, there's a statue. You go in a business, there's a statue. Our hotel had this big elephant goat looking statue and people would come and put down this sacrifice to you get in a car driving through Mumbai wondering if you're going to make it to be real honest in the city and the, the driver has a little statue on his dashboard if it helps him you know whatever but there, there's idols everywhere in my pride I remember thinking man are, I am so glad I don't do something so ridiculous as have these little idols everywhere. How ridiculous that is. And then it's as if the Spirit of God just spoke in my heart and said something to this effect. These passages came to my mind and said, at least their idols are outward and visible. Yours are hidden in your own heart. <laughs> That's the point. Paul says we need to be very well aware that our heart tendencies are just like the children of Israel. The affections and cravings of our heart are continually drifting to fix upon something of the creation instead of the creator. That is a constant temptation and challenge for them, and it's the same temptation for you. So, Pastor Mike, idols? Come on, man. An idol can be anything that claims the place in my heart that's reserved for the Lord Jesus alone. An idol can be any good thing, any good gift from God that we in our heart elevate to a God thing. And we do that very easily. An idol can be anything that you and I look to, rest in, trust in, to do or be or provide what only God can do or be or provide in our lives. We substitute lesser things. John Calvin said, our hearts are little idol factories. That's our tendency. We have a tendency to take things that are entrusted by God for our good, that are very good things, and begin to find our identity, our security, our hope, our future, our peace in that thing. And watch this, that thing is never meant to give us all that. Only God can do that. Why are first-year marriages so struggling often when there is disappointment in the first year of the marriage? You tend to forget you married a broken person. They cannot be your God. Why do relationships go south? Relationships can be a gift from God. But if you want to be very frustrated with someone in a human relationship, you begin to find your identity ultimately, your security ultimately in that person, and you will crush that person under expectation because they can't be God. Or you will find yourself very disappointed because you've raised the bar and thinking they can be God. They are not. They can be a gift. They cannot be your God. Same thing with your job. I'm going to step on a lot of toes here because I'm a parent. Same thing with your children. 
Your children are gifts from God, arrows to be shot out into the world for his glory. But if you begin to idolize your children as that which you find your identity and security in them or their success on the ball field or whatever it is, here's what you'll do to your kids. You'll crush them under that expectation. They can't be God in your life. Can't. So God here, Paul here, through Paul's writing, God is saying to us, don't be so foolish. Be aware your heart and my heart tends to drift. We will worship something. We're wired to worship. If we worship anything less than God himself and place it on anything less, we are placing it on something that will fail us. First commandment, children of Israel, Come into the land before they go to Canaan. God gives them the Ten Commandments. First commandment, what was it? It was about worship. You shall have no other gods before you. What does that mean? No other God can take the place of God. You'll try. You'll put things there. You'll be sorely disappointed. And you're robbing God of his glory. That's our tendency. Paul says you have that tendency. Things we struggle with are worship issues. This is a worship issue. We will all worship something. Question, what are you worshiping? What has your affections right now? What is it that you're looking to for your ultimate joy? What is it that you have your identity wrapped up in? Where is it that you're placing your security? Where is it you think finds peace, your health, your prosperity? And here's a good indicator. What is it that you are absolutely horrified that you might lose? That might indicate the condition of your heart. Paul goes on. The second one, you say, well, these, these two don't even seem to be connected. I don't understand. He says, first is idolatry. It's one of those common temptations to all of us. The second one is immorality, verse 8. He says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Making reference back to Numbers 25, probably, or one of the incidents, you see this pattern of the children of Israel worshiping these false gods, and what followed was always immorality. Why? Why is idolatry and immorality always connected in the Bible? Watch this. Because whoever or whatever has your heart, your body will always follow. Always. Whoever or whatever has your heart's affection and attention, your body will follow. Your body's energy, your body's zeal, your body's purity, whatever it is. You see people giving energy and money and time and all these things to lesser things. Why is that? Because that lesser thing has their heart. On the reverse side, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Whom or what you worship, your body, your time, your energy, your money, your efforts will follow. They were walking in immorality to the gods of the land because the gods of the land had their heart. That's a temptation for all of us. Idolatry, immorality, it's a worship problem. Ultimately, number three, grumbling. I'm skipping verse 9. We'll go back to verse 9 in a minute. We're going to wrap up with that one. Jump down to verse, down to verse 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 10. He says, grumbling. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. God dealt with their, their grumbling. 
Now, let's be honest. If you're a parent here, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Is grumbling not the ugliest word in the Bible? Murmuring, right? It's just this under the breath, contemptuous attitude. And by the way, it can come out in words. I have kids. It can come out with body language, right? Right? We've all seen I do it too. So do you. It's a human condition of the heart. You say, I don't understand idolatry, immorality. I mean, grumbling? It doesn't seem to be on the same plane. Watch this. Here's what the attitude of grumbling is saying. Grumbling here is not, not critically evaluating something. That, that, that's okay. We're called to do that. DA talked about that last week. It's not what God's talking about here. Grumbling is this. Unwarranted dissatisfaction with God, ultimately grumbling is you are placing yourself in the judgment seat over God. God, I am just put up. I'm put out with the way you're doing this. Lord, I'm so, you may not verbalize it. There is this heart condition that there's this lack of trust, lack of confidence in his goodness. The children of Israel expressed it over and over and over. God, we're sick of this food. You've brought us here to kill us in the wilderness. We know you parted the Red Sea. We know you've showered us with your grace. We know you've provided every morning. We, We are in the midst of your blessings, God. It's not enough for us. We don't trust you. You put yourself in a place of judgment over God. And your grumbling is an expression of your heart condition. He deals with that. It's a temptation for all of us. Our heart shifts. Our body and our energy and our life follows. And then we're contemptuous back to God because our heart has shifted from him. And we no longer trust him. Temptation for all of us. And he goes on, skip back to verse nine. He says, testing God, testing God. One place in the Bible, Malachi chapter three, we're called to test God. God says, put me to the test in your giving. Trust me and see if I don't pour out the storehouses of heaven. The testing there is from a place of faith. I trust your promises so much, God. I'm gonna step out in obedience, believing you to be faithful to your promises. That's the proper kind of testing. This kind of testing is their decisions were made from a place of unbelief. We don't really trust you. And here's what we're going to do. The testing here, verse 9, nor let us try or test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Talk about that in a second. Here's what they did. They were presuming on God's favor and on his grace. The idea was this, not God, you've, you've showered me with so much grace in Christ, spirit of the Lord. I'm so, I'm so blessed, Lord. How can I pursue you and present my, it's this. How close to the edge can I go and still presume on your grace? How close can I get? How far can I push? What can I get away with? That's not the attitude of worship. That's the attitude of a drifting heart that presumes on the grace of God. Gives us an illustration here. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll come back to that. I want you to flip back in your Bible to Numbers 21. Probably read it this past week, maybe familiar with it. Paul's referring to this incident as an incident of grumbling and an incident of testing God. Numbers 21, verse 5. Here's what he says. The people, people of Israel, 
spoke against God and Moses. And by the way, at this point in Numbers 21, they're 39 years after what happened at Kadesh and they didn't enter the land. They're about a year from entering the promised land in the book of Joshua. They've been wandering around for 39 years. Most of that generation's already gone. Most of them's dead, but the grumblers are still there. Verse five, they said against God and against Moses, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Have you read that and just go, is this like on repeat? Is this a broken record over and over? Why have you brought us here to die, God? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this miserable food, which is a contradiction. There is food. You just don't like how God's providing for you. You think you know better. So God, in verse six, does this. If you're not familiar with the story, you're gonna go, what is happening here? And by the way, I, I don't know how, you, this is one of those horrifying stories to me, one of my least favorite stories in the Bible, and at the same time, hilarious. There is an animal on the planet that's my, well, my second least favorite animal. Cats are number one, right? And snakes. The snakes show up here in Numbers 21. He says this, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Fiery serpents. Evidently, the word fiery returns to the potency of their venom. You get bit with one of these things, you got a short lifespan. It's over. And, the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So they come to Moses, verse 7, and they say, Moses, we've sinned. Yep, we blew it. There's nothing like a good reptile infestation to bring about repentance, right? If I see one more fiery venomous, Lord, we've sinned, we blew it, we've, we've been tempting God because we've spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses, middle of verse seven, intercede for us with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. So they go to Moses and here's the situation. Kind of got a double meaning going on here. Paul uses this in reference to believers in our pursuit. The Gospel of John is going to use this in reference to non-believers to say the same curse of death that they were under is the same curse every human being is under called sin. All of us. No hope. Unless God provides a way. It goes to their intercessor, Moses. Moses prays, verse eight, and the Lord said to Moses, now this is the grace of God. In the midst of God's righteous, justified judgment for their rebellion and sin, they come to God and say, God, do something. You gotta make a way. And God says, okay, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to provide a deliverer. Says this, verse nine. I'm sorry, verse eight. Make a fiery serpent, Moses, set it on a standard. That's a word for a pole. Take this pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten under the curse of death, when he looks at it, he will live. Take this serpent, the symbol of death, and fasten it to a pole, raise it up above the earth, and anyone who looks, and the word look is a reference to a look of faith, not a casual glance, but a look of faith, Whoever looks to that serpent in faith will live. Was there saving power in that serpent on the pole? No. There was saving power in the promise of God that looked forward to the one that would be fastened to a tree many centuries later, bearing the sin of the world. 
and their hope was in the promise that God had made. Faith is trusting in God's provision as he declares it to be. God provided a way. They were delivered. They looked. Verse 9, Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard. It came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Message of the gospel is here. Look to God's provision, fastened to the pole and raised above the earth, and you'll live. The message to anyone who doesn't know Christ. We know that because John chapter 3, I'll just read this to you really quick. John chapter 3, Jesus refers back to Numbers 21. He and Nicodemus are in a dialogue, a religious leader. Then Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what we just read, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up in reference to himself so that whoever believes will have eternal life. This looking in faith is the same as believing, trusting in God's provision. Verse 16, you ever heard this before? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Most famous verse in the Bible has as its context and its foundation, the serpent on the pole. God's provision, look and live. Paul, at the same time, takes this account and uses it for believers to say, be warned of the tendency you have for your heart to stray in false worship of idols. Your body will follow. You will grow in this dissatisfaction with who God is. There will be this grumbling and you will live contemptuously of the grace of God, constantly testing God's grace. Paul says, I love you too much. I don't want that to happen. Flip back. Flip, flip back now to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll bring it home. So Paul, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? What's the application? The Bible interprets the Bible. Paul gives us the application back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to give you three quick, big ideas that flow out of this this morning, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Paul, what do we do with all this? Verse 11, he said, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Stop right there. Why does Paul say it that way? Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's saying this, you live in the messianic age, the end of the age. If the children of Israel experience the blessings of God, you in the messianic age far more. You live post-resurrection. You live on this side of Christ. You live in the time when the Bible is given to you. You live in a time where the Spirit of God does not dwell outside of us in a cloud. He inhabits the people of God. If the people of Israel experience great blessings, we far more. But Paul say, you upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He goes on, he says, verse 12. Therefore, here's your application. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Wake up. Big idea number one is this. Prideful overconfidence leads to disaster. You're to read those stories of the Old Testament, Paul says, and you're to read them with the confidence and a trust in the finished work of Christ, but at the same time realize the same temptations that face them constantly face us, and there is no sin that I'm not capable of committing. You too. 
There's no pathway that I'm not capable of going down. When I drift from accountability and I drift from the people of God and I drift from his word and I think I can do this on my own and I have this smugness that I'm confident in myself, Paul says, I love you enough to say, take heed. So you don't fall. Never forget when I was in seminary, it just reverberates in my head. There was a survey taken, I think it was taken by Dallas Theological Seminary, I don't remember, but it was a survey of 1,000 pastors who had fallen into immorality. And there was a question, what led, because it doesn't happen overnight, it's a slow fade like that song, what happens to bring you to the place that you would fall morally in your life? Many of them said, well, I fell out of fellowship and relationship with the Lord. Stress and pressure led to it. Many of them said there was no accountability. Every one of them said, I never thought it would happen to me. Take heed, lest we fall. Verse 13, continue on. Two more and we'll be done. He says this, he says, no temptation's overtaken you that's not common to man. Here's big idea number two. No temptation is unique to us, but common to all people at all times. Here's what that means. Let me blow up a lie that the enemy really loves to tell you and your flesh loves to buy in. You just don't understand my situation. If you were in the place I was in, if you had experienced that loss or you had experienced what I'd experienced, listen, not to discredit what we go through in our lives, Paul is declaring something here. There is no temptation the child of God will ever face that is unique to them but common to all people. And when you begin to believe the lie that my situation is special, my situation is unique, then you will go down a pathway of justifying and giving yourself more leeway and you will fall into sin. Well, you don't know what I lost. Well, you don't know how bad it is. No temptation has overtaken you, Paul says, that's not common. You will not or have not ever faced an exceptional temptation common to man. Number three, and we're finished. Great promise from the Lord here. This is so encouraging to us. We hear about all these challenges that are before us, all these temptations that we don't... Paul comes back and he says, no temptation's overtaken you. It's not common to man. And watch this. And God is what? Faithful. What does that mean? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you and I will be able to endure it. Big idea number three. In every temptation, God faithfully provides grace to escape and to endure. Meaning you can't believe the lie that says, whoo, this one was too much for me, and give yourself a pass to buy into the lie of the enemy. God says, in your temptation, the, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God, God gives grace so that with every temptation, there is a way of escape. With every temptation, you can endure up under it. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean that temptation's not gonna keep pounding, keep pounding, keep pounding. But this is a promise like an arrow in the hand of every believer to say, God promises his faithfulness right in the middle of that temptation. Where's the way of escape? Because you promised one. Where's the grace to endure? Because you promised it. 
and we hold to the promise of God. Paul loves this church here. He uses this as an illustration of those he loves so that they will continue to run the race in pursuit of the Lord Jesus and in this privilege we have to make him known. And in the same way he uses as an example, there is much at stake, there's much to pursue on. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So here's the response time this morning. Ask the team to come on up. The response time is gonna be the Lord's Supper this morning. Right, right when Paul finishes writing about this, he writes chapter 11 and walks them through the meaning of the Lord's Supper. It's a blessing this morning that we get to go to the Lord's Supper, prepare our hearts of rejoicing in the finished work of Christ, and at the same time, Spirit of God, examine my heart. Search my heart, Lord. What's my idol? Where are my idols? Lord, where is my body and my decisions following my shifted heart? Lord, is my heart just grumbling against you? Lord, have I placed myself in a seat of judgment over you? Am I pushing the limits of God's grace? What? I pray this is a time of confession and repentance, and then we'll celebrate at the Lord's table together. I'm gonna pray. Pastor Jeremy's here. He's gonna walk us through the Lord's table. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of the Lord's Supper given to your people in all these generations. Spirit of God, I ask you to search my heart and search the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, Lord, so that none of us would crave the things of the world, but set our eyes firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.